Palm Sunday, April 10th, 2022. 150 years prior to the arrival of Jesus on earth, two brothers, Judas and Simon Maccabeus, led a revolution among the people in Jerusalem. At the time, the Seleucid Empire was in control under a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He attacked the people of God, forcing them to discontinue circumcision, Sabbath observance, and the daily sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple. All of which were at the center and the core of what it meant to be a person of the people of God. He and the Seleucid soldiers even sacrificed pigs to Zeus in the temple which was a deep cut to the Jewish people. And so as a result of this, the Jewish people were once again under the thumb of a horrible empire and its rules and regulations. This had happened before uh, to the Assyrians, to the Persians, to the Babylonians, and now to the Seleucids. And so Judas and Simon Maccabeus took action. Judas began the revolution by helping overthrow the Seleucid hold on Jewish Worship. He regained control of the temple and its purposes. And he, along with Jewish revolutionaries, decided we are going to re-consecrate this temple to God. And they did that. And then 20 years later, around 141 BC, Judas's brother, Simon, completed this upheaval of the Seleucids in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And the temple in Jerusalem were once again in full control of the Jewish people. And so to honor their victory, Simon Maccabeus and his leading military leaders entered the city of Jerusalem upon their mighty horses and chariots. And the people of Jerusalem lined the streets singing praises and waving palm branches as a symbol of peace and victory. No longer were they going to be oppressed by another kingdom. God's kingdom had been restored. 200 years later, another man entered Jerusalem with crowds of people lining the streets, singing praises and waving palm branches, just like they did for Simon and Judas 200 years earlier. But this time, things were a little different. The entrance of this man wasn't what anyone expected. Now, as Kristen mentioned, today marks the beginning of a very special week in the Christian calendar, in the Christian life. Uh, Palm Sunday begins what is historically known as Holy Week, begins today and then till Easter Sunday. There are a number of things that are going to occur, even within the midst of our church. Good Friday, our 24-hour prayer experience. And, And these are all there to help us look and just sort of meditate on the critical moments of Jesus' life and his eventual death and resurrection. So before we get to Palm Sunday, I just want us to pause and take a minute to pray, to just invite God to come into this place, to speak to us, to show us uh, maybe something new today, maybe something different today that we hadn't seen before, maybe change our perspective just a little bit on what Palm Sunday really is all about. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for inviting us into this space this morning. We all come to this room carrying different things, joyful about different things, 
And we come as a community to meet with you, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your scriptures, that you would give us insight, not just into who you are, but to who we are in the lives that we live. I pray, God, that you would speak to us in a profound way this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So if you haven't done so, grab your phone and open up to the YouVersion app. Make sure you go to more and then events if you struggle to find our event uh, Genesis Church, you can follow along with everything we're going to read. Also, if you have your Bible today, go to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, that's where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, just a bit of background on what we're about to read. For about three years, Jesus has been traveling throughout the area of Judea near Jerusalem. And he's been moving from town to town to town, teaching, performing miracles, and leading this ragtag group of ill-equipped followers to this new way of life that he's introducing them. And so as a result, he has received this reputation among the masses, this reputation that his miracles and his teachings have left him with. And it's caused this murmur among people as to who his true identity is. There's some confusion about who Jesus really is. In fact, Jesus asked his disciples, his first followers, this very question and there's even some confusion among them, right? They're, they're not quite sure. And so interestingly, along the way of all of this, these three years of him teaching and performing miracles and leading this group of people, Jesus keeps telling people to be quiet about who he really is. Now, you would think that a guy like Jesus, who came to be the savior of the world, right, would want people to know that. And so as he performs miracles, you would think that he would be like, yes, now go tell everyone you know. But that's not what he does. Look at what he does in Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus heals a man with leprosy in the company of many people. And after the man's healing, Jesus says to him, don't tell anyone about this. Like it's some secret, right? Like he did something bad almost. In the gospel of Mark, if you read it, Jesus does this numerous times. And it may make you wonder, why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he want everyone to know who he is in that moment? And that's a good question. It's a really good question. But here's the reason Jesus is saying this. This is why Jesus is doing this, because he knows. He knows if word gets out too fast about who he really is, and what he's really doing, his ministry will end preemptively. He knows where this is headed. He, he knows that this ends at the cross. And he doesn't want that to happen too soon. He's got work still to be done. And so Jesus wants to preserve the time that he has on earth to do ministry. So he attempts to keep his true identity under wraps. As much as possible, he, he wants people to subtly know who he is, but he doesn't want this to be something that goes out like wildfire. That is until Matthew 21. Because in Matthew 21, Jesus just lets the cat out of the bag. And he just says, all right, this is who I really am. This is who I am. He, he decides to make an announcement that he is the king that he is the Messiah the Jews have been waiting for. Only he does it in the most unorthodox manner. 
He does it in the most unpopular manner. One could ever have dreamed up doing this. Let's read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Matthew writes, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately let you take them. Okay, stop there for a sec. Can we all just admit that this is not a normal request? Jesus is asking two of his first followers to go to a stranger that they don't know and ask for their donkey and its baby. Right Now keep in mind, the disciples, like they're getting excited. They're finally heading to Jerusalem. They know what this means, right? They, they, they know the stories. They know Judas and Simon Maccabeus and what happened uh, 200 years prior, and, and they're finding out this, is, this guy is the king. They know what's going on. They know who he is, and their minds cannot help but remember how popular figures, those who have d- declared victory, enter into the city of Jerusalem. I mean, they are pumped up. It's happening. So why in the world is Jesus asking for a donkey and its baby? Well, verses 4 through 6 tell us one reason. It says this, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Verse 6, the two disciples did as Jesus commanded, They brought the donkey and the colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. So so the text tells us that the first reason Jesus goes in on a donkey is because this is what God said he would do. In the book of Zechariah, hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, God says, this is how your king will arrive in Jerusalem. And now the time has come for Jesus to fulfill that prophecy. But there's a second reason Jesus chooses a donkey's colt as his transportation on Palm Sunday. Jesus was announcing, I am not the king you expected. I don't, I'm not coming in on horseback to exhibit my prominence. I come in on a donkey's colt to exhibit my humility. This is the kind of king I am. It's not the king that you expected. By the way, we just talk about a donkey's colt for a second. Maybe you didn't grow up on a farm. I've been around farms. My parents grew up on farms. A donkey's colt is a miniature donkey, okay? A tiny little donkey, right? This is an unbroken, young, and energetic animal that is by no means ready for anyone to sit upon its back. For any normal person, attempting to ride a baby donkey would be like signing up for the rodeo, right? I mean, this is insanity. As they bring this donkey and it's cold, you have to think the disciples are going, well, you're going to get on the donkey, right? He's like, no, 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 no. I want to ride the little one. Like a petting zoo, Jesus gets on the donkey's colt. 
Now, I mean, again, like if you tried this, and I wish well, I had a donkey's colt so I could make my wife try this for you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank goodness I don't, right? I display it for you, be a little, you know, ex- you know, exhibition of what goes on. But if you were to try to do this, you would immediately fall off. The donkey would take off, but, but that's not what happens with Jesus. See, because in the midst of Jesus saying, this is who I am, I'm the unexpected king, the humble king, he's also exhibiting his power, his absolute power over creation. Colossians says that in him, in Jesus, all things were created and held together. All things, including a baby donkey, are held together by Jesus. Jesus has complete control and power over this cult. And by writing it, Jesus announces both his humility and his power. I have to believe that people were like, how is he riding that baby donkey? As much as they were saying, why is he riding a baby donkey? Because the truth is, no one expected this kind of king. No one expected to see that kind of power be put on display, the kind of king that would tame an unruly animal in creation and make an entrance in the humblest of ways. No one was expecting that. Nevertheless, as Jesus enters the city, the people flock to him. I mean, they've heard about this guy. Things, I mean, he is trending on all the platforms like he is popular. And he is ready, they are ready to give him a hero's Welcome, right? So verse 8, it says this. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Other translations use the word Hosanna. Hosanna. The same word they yelled when Judas and Simon Maccabeus entered the city. Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. And they laid their jackets down and they spread palm branches on the road where he entered as if to say, we are your servants. We submit to you, our king. In John's telling of this story, It says that people waved palm branches, much like our kiddos did a little bit ago as he entered. A sign of peace has finally come to us. All of this was an acknowledgement of the Jewish people saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah and the King we've been waiting for. And in their minds, he was coming to finally overturn the Roman Empire and reestablish God's rule here on earth in Jerusalem, just like Simon and his brother Judas did 200 years later by overturning the Seleucid Empire. Jesus is coming to overturn the Roman Empire, to rid it of our nation so that we can once again be free on earth. Can we just pause for a moment? And just sort of notice the almost comical scene that is occurring. Jesus is a 33-year-old man riding on the back of a baby donkey. I mean, this 
This is the king that everyone is expecting, this king to come and overturn the Roman Empire and revolutionize the, 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 the people of Jerusalem and all the way through Judea and Judah and the area surrounding. This was not at all what they expected. I mean, to imagine, like, he's coming, he's coming. They're grabbing their blankets, they're grabbing their palm branches, and they run to the street, and they're like, oh, what's that? What is that? What is that? It's almost comical what is happening. In fact, this is why it says this in verse 10 and 11. It says this, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. Verse 11, and the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I mean, people watch Jesus come in on this baby donkey, and they're like, who is this clown? To which I hear People who actually knew him just sort of timidly say, is Jesus, like he's the prophet, Nazareth from Galilee, like this, this is our king. And even so, it seems like, it seems like people can get past some of this unusual you know, nature, this comical event. They sort of get past that, the entrance of Jesus. They're still, they still seem sort of excited for his arrival. They give him a king's entrance, but it, what, it's what Jesus does next. That must have left them just going, what in the world? It's funny, I was talking with somebody this week, and I said, did you know that this happens right after Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem? And I think we forget this. And they were like, no, I never put those two things together. Right? I mean, here, here's how royalty normally enters a city, Right? It's likely that days prior to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, who would eventually tell the Romans to crucify Jesus, that he would have entered the city in a very similar manner, but from the other side of the city. He didn't actually live in Jerusalem, but he would actually come to Jerusalem when big festivals were happening, happening to make sure that you know, the peace stayed and that people didn't get out of hand and that they didn't do anything that went against the Roman Empire. And so it's very likely that Pontius Pilate re-entered the city from the other side of the city and he rode his horse and he had his military leaders and it was a big to-do, right? And then he came to his palace and he would climb the palace stairs and he would stand over the masses of people and he would wave and they would cheer, yay, this guy's here, finally, whatever. And then he would go into his palace and he'd eat you know, steak or something. And that's how kings entered. That's how royalty entered a city. And so, look, like, Jesus is here. He's on a donkey. That's a little weird, but you know what? Like, he's here, and so we're not really sure what's going on. So, But it seems like, you know what? He's going to do the thing. He's going to do what royalty does when they enter the city. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus beelines it to the temple and he does this. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Did you know that that happened on Palm Sunday? That was Jesus' first act as this new crowned king of the people as he went to the temple and he destroyed it. He went all UFC on the temple and that was his first act. Can you imagine the side conversations that must be going on 
among the Jews. Even those who are believers that Jesus is the King of Kings must be going, what have I gotten myself into? This is not normal behavior, but Jesus is doing something here, and he's saying to them, I'm the king no one expected. Jesus is doing this because he's the king no one expected. You know, there's a few things that are happening as he enters the city and he goes into the temple and he basically, you know, destroys the temple. There's a few things that Jesus is saying about who he is as the king. And the first is this, that Jesus is saying, I'm a little countercultural. Jesus is the king that nobody expected because Jesus is countercultural. Jesus enters the city on a baby donkey, right? Days prior, Pilate entered on a thoroughbred. This is very countercultural. But Jesus is showing those in Jerusalem and us that the kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. The kingdom of God honors those who are humble and poor in spirit. The kingdom Jesus is establishing is not concerned with earthly power and prestige. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus says just a couple of chapters later in Matthew chapter 23, he says, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That is totally countercultural. Even in the 21st century, that is totally countercultural. It can't possibly be that those who are humble are actually exalted in the eyes of God, can it? Because everything in our world says the exact opposite. But Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem signifies something massively countercultural about him as king and the kingdom he is establishing. It is not like every other kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is not what you expected. The, the second thing uh, that makes Jesus the king that no one expected is that Jesus is confrontational. Now, it's my guess that as Jesus approached the temple, right, he's coming into the city, and people are like, wow, this is amazing. A little weird, but amazing. People are excited for him to climb the stairs of the temple and announce salvation for the people. Much like Pilate would have done in his palace days earlier, the people in Jerusalem were expecting Jesus to bless and honor the temple as the central place where his kingdom would be established. But that is not what happens. Jesus goes all UFC on the temple and everything inside of it. The temple will become a place of commerce for the religious elite, the Sadducees and Pharisees, namely. They lined their pockets with money from those who worked within the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish people were victims of their own temple. So in the most confrontational moments in the life of Jesus, he starts destroying what they have built. This is not the king they expected. They were looking for a king who would approve of them, who would approve of their lifestyle, who would finally come and, and sort of bring them together and let them rise above all of the other empires, not one who would try to overturn what they were doing. And then finally, Jesus is the king, is not the king anyone expected because Jesus is controversial. 
after Jesus wreaks havoc on the temple, he says the most controversial thing he could have said in that moment. Jesus could have said anything in this moment, and this is what he chooses to say. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus says, this is my temple. This is my house. Now, everyone knew the temple was whose? God's. So what is Jesus saying in that moment? He's saying, me? I'm God. I'm God. And this is my house. Right? The temple was the place where God resided, that people could go and atone for their sins and meet with him. How could Jesus possibly say it's his temple? He's saying, I am God. I am the son of God. I'm not just a king. I am the savior. I am God. I am the one you didn't expect. And you know, it's Jesus' countercultural, confrontational, and controversial behaviors that will ultimately cause the words of the crowds to change from Hosanna, save us, to crucify him. And why? Why would their shouts change so drastically? Because Jesus is not the king anyone expected. It's not what they wanted. This is not what I want. It's what they needed, but it's not what they wanted. You see, Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday left very little gray area in what people are allowed to think of him. Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday don't allow a person to just like him. Like, I like Jesus. He's a nice guy. Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday don't allow for that sort of statement. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters of the king no one expected, and he leaves only two choices for them and for us. He says to the, day, the crowds that day, either you king me or you kill me. There is no in-between. You cannot just like me. You cannot just, you know... Have me like as your dessert to the rest of your meal. You either king me or you're going to have to kill me. Now, Jesus knew what was going to happen, right? Jesus knew. He knew he would be crucified only days after his arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But that unspoken statement on Palm Sunday is still alive for us today. You see, Jesus is still the king no one expects, even in the 21st century. Jesus is still countercultural, still confrontational, still controversial. He's still not allowing us to just like him. He's still only leaving us with the choice. You either king me or you kill me. You either make me the king of your entire life, as unexpected as I may be. You either make me king of your entire life or you throw me to the side as if I were dead. Those are the only two choices Jesus gives us. 
know, Jesus doesn't allow room to be the king of our spiritual life, but not our financial life. That's a way for us to just say, well, I like you in this area, but not in this area. He doesn't allow for that. It's all or nothing. Jesus doesn't allow uh, him to, to just be king of our lives on Sundays, but not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He doesn't allow room for that. He doesn't allow room to be the king of some places in your internal life, but not in others. Jesus walks into the darkest places in our lives and starts flipping tables to cleanse us and heal us. Because he's the king no one expected, but he's the king that everyone needed. But he doesn't allow room for us to just say, well, I kind of like you. Jesus says, you have a choice. You can either king me or you can kill me. And so just like that very first Palm Sunday, we come face to face with the stark reality that Jesus is not the king that everyone expects. And the same question is given to us today as it was to the Jews in Jerusalem that very first Palm Sunday. Jesus asked us, will you king me or will you kill me? Will you shout, Hosanna, save me? Or will you shout, crucify Get rid of him. Put him to death. Will you let me be, Jesus says, the king of your entire life, allowing me to transform and change who you are in the deepest, darkest places of your life and experience the abundance of joy and peace and hope that can only be found in him? Or will you take him and toss him aside, wishing he were dead? To make him king means receiving the kingdom of God and everything in it. But to toss him aside, Jesus even says, is to lose everything. There is no gray area on Palm Sunday. Jesus makes it really clear. I am the king. This is my temple. You will now atone for your sins through me. And you'll either king me in your life or you'll discard me. You'll kill me. Jesus is the king no one expected, so will you king him or will you kill him? This morning, I want us to take a minute to just reflect on that a little bit, to really think about who Jesus is to you, to ask yourself the hard questions of, is Jesus the king of my life? Or is it possible that I want him to be king of some things, but not others? And to surrender yourself this morning to the man who rode in on a baby donkey to tell us, I am the king no one expected, but I come for you. Come for you. Jesus, after Palm Sunday, he he does some teaching, and things get really tense in Jerusalem. We're going to find that out coming up next weekend, but things get really tense, and he knows this is the, this is the beginning of the end for me. And so uh, over a Passover dinner, he gathers with his close followers, who quite honestly are struggling with all of this. They're still trying to figure out what in the world does this mean. He keeps telling us he's going to die, and 
raised again three days later. I don't understand what that means. He keeps telling people, don't tell others who I am. I mean, it's very confusing, very cryptic. All of that's going to come, you know, they're going to get make sense of it real soon. But as he gathers with these friends of his, he, he stops in the middle of their dinner and he takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks for it. And he says, friends, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. So in this moment, I want you to remember that, that, that I am your king. I'm not what you expected, but I am your king. So when you get together, take this and eat this and remember that I am your king. So let's this morning remember the kingship of Jesus together. In the same way, later in the meal, he took a, a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. My blood shed for your forgiveness of sins. And that through the shedding of my blood, you now have a new relationship with God. Because I'm your king, you now have a new relationship with God that will go on forever and ever and ever. So when you get together... Take this and drink it and remember me. Father, we thank you that Jesus had the courage and the audacity to enter into the city of Jerusalem on that day put on display the kind of king that he really is. God, the last thing that we need is another pompous, seemingly powerful person to try and control our lives. What we have always needed is a loving, gracious, kind, merciful, humble, peaceful, hopeful king who would ride in on a young donkey, displaying his power over creation, who would ride in and walk up to the temple and flip the tables to cleanse it and to heal it, to announce that this is now the temple we have at our fingertips, to be in the presence of you in and through him. God, we are grateful that he would go to the cross to die a brutal, brutal death, that we in the midst of our sin and our struggle and our mistakes, that we would become heirs to the king, beneficiaries of your kingdom on this earth and all the way past death into eternity. And so on this Sunday, we thank you for the king who came to rule and reign not with a heavy fist, but with compassion and love and mercy for all of us. And we declare in this room this morning that Jesus, you are our king. You are our king. Do a good work in us. May you put on display who you are in the coming week, how passionate you are for who we are, the love you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.